You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Did you notice something was missing last week? Did you feel something was off? Well, I was off. I was away on a family vacation, and I am really sorry. I wanted to leave you a something, a little something to nosh on. But I didn't, I couldn't, I'm sorry, I missed you. But we're back. Uh, back and um, have the jet lag to prove it. So let's, let me hurry and let me give you my five wonderful things without further ado. Number one, I love the way my phone can alert me about telemarketers on the phone. I love that. I don't want to talk to telemarketers. I do not have, and I'm I, now I've said this. I know, I know, I've said this at least two hundred times. I do not own a Honda. Please don't call me about my Honda's insurance. I don't have a damn Honda. Anyway, it's really nice when the phone can alert you to that. It's even better than caller ID, and those intrusions really. Who needs them? If you don't have telemarketer alert on your phone, I can't even tell you how to get it because I don't know how I got it. That is the beauty of being a technological idiot. Number two, the new film, What They Had, a beautiful, honest movie about feelings and relationships in a family. It's really about the effects of Alzheimer's on the grandma who has it, her husband, the children, even the grandchild. It's a beautiful movie starring Hilary Swank, who also produced it, and Michael Shannon, Robert Forster, and Blythe Danner. And best of all, it's written and directed by Elizabeth Chomko, the charming woman who will be our guest on this podcast. Even if she weren't the guest on this podcast, I would tell you to go see the movie, though, because it moved me that much. Number three. Last week, as I traveled, I traveled with, this is really big, a backpack. I usually carry a shoulder bag, but I used a backpack for everything. And I have to tell you, based on the five to seven and maybe more miles that we hiked most days, the backpack is the greatest invention. Oh my God. Why didn't I know about this? It's fantastic. The one I carried was made by a company called Amy Kestenberg because Amy Kestenberg is the person who designs them. I met her at a luncheon and she sent me a beautiful oxblood leather backpack. And from what I recall, she told me she had a background in engineering. And so the details, uh, the zipper is very strong. It's an epic zipper. The way it lies against your shoulders is very good. I'm all for it. And I think having your hands free, in this case, to hold on to railings, uh, because we were climbing down some very steep steps, uh, I think for everybody involved, everyone who was in the whole Middle East knows that I didn't fall, probably because I had a backpack. Number four, mom and pop stores. There are a few in my neighborhood, and I make a point of patronizing them. The pharmacy, 
a very old-timey stationery store, the jewelry repair place and the butcher. And it's not a judgment. I shop at chain stores too, but I feel better when I've given my business to a local business. And the service is better. People get to know you. The proprietors get to know us and look out for us. Now, for years, there was a spectacular bookstore on Madison Avenue called Burlington Books. And I considered the owner, a woman named Jane, a genius. She and her staff would prescribe books to you as if they were doctors. Oh, you've got to read this, Ethan Canaan. Oh, you want to read about the Civil War nurses? Don't read the Curtis. Read the Owen. That's so much better. I mean, they were geniuses. When they were having trouble making the new landlord, the landlord's new rent, I mourned the demise of of the store. I mourned the demise of that place. I tried to rescue it. I thought we should have a a big fundraiser, but you know that was then, and it didn't stay. And you know, there's Amazon and Amazon moving to Queens and the Hoopla and. You know, they have artificial intelligence and know what you want, know what you've looked at, know what you're thinking. But you know what? They'll never be like Burlington, and local stores are my favorite. Number five, crossing my fingers and toes that Robert Mueller hasn't been bullied or threatened this week. Well, he has been, I guess, but at least that he's persevering. I want to thank him for his service, both as a veteran and as a holder of our feet to the fire. Speaking of the fire, I wish everyone well in California. It's terrifying. I can't think of anything more frightening than a wildfire, a wildfire that's out of control. It makes you think, those of us who are in safe, wet places like New York, that we really do need to be thinking of others, all our old clothes that we don't want, we should send to California to people who've lost everything. And we should really keep a bag packed with documents, photographs, and so on that we need because you never know. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest this week. And my guest is Elizabeth Chomko, the writer and director of a beautiful new movie, that I hope you will all see called What They Had. Uh, Has it opened um, nationally, Elizabeth? Yes, it's sort of making its way through various cities and regions um, and probably will continue to open, um, hopefully, at theaters all over over the course of the next few weeks. That is fantastic. So I will just say that one of the things I loved about the movie, which is really about a family's dynamics as a mother, as a parent becomes more and more indisposed, and how the children react. And it's really from almost the children's point of view, I would say, about watching their parents' infirmity, is it's a movie, it's actually an adult movie. It's a movie for adults. It's a movie about feelings and things that are pretty subtle. And I so appreciate that because sometimes I feel that movies in the theaters just leave adult people who want to see a movie about feelings and relationships out. Yes. Um, well, I don't disagree. I These are my kind of movies, movies that are um, about people, uh, real people. So mm-hmm. 
And that's what I attempted to do with this film. And this is a script that you wrote, rewrote, rewrote, rewrote for how long? Well, I wrote the first draft very quickly, like in a matter of a few days, and then spent the next several years uh, rewriting it many times um, to try to make it good. I was, you know, deepening the relationships and the characters and really focusing on the psychology and, and certainly mining my own stuff, right, in trying to work things out and find order in things that feel unorderly and chaotic. Well, the story was inspired by what happened with your grandma. Yes, it was, yes, inspired by my grandmother who was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's disease at 68, when she was 68, which was quite young mm-hmm. and really sad and unfair. And, um, you know, and I expected it to be very hard on her. Uh, I didn't quite anticipate how hard it would be on everybody else right. as well, including my grandfather and the toll that it took on him, his health, his faith, uh, his uh, emotional health. It's tough to be a caregiver. And I think in addition to all of that, it was it really inspired me to consider how what a gift our memories are, how lucky we are to have them and that they don't stick around forever and that they change and morph and they're kind of unreliable. Um, but that it wasn't memory wasn't something that I wanted to take for granted. You know, it's interesting you should say that because last week I went on a trip with my brother and it was the first time we traveled together without our parents uh, ever. And we were reminiscing about certain um, incidents in our history. And of course, he had different takes or different memories altogether from what Mm. I thought was an unimpeachable legend or an unimpeachable story about that, that summer or whatever. And memory is so subjective. It's just, it, it's hard to wrap your head around. Yes, in, indeed. And it's a funny thing, right, where you, you, you remember something and then and you remember it differently. The next, you know, the next time you think about it, things change and details morph. And I, when I was making the film, I was thinking about my grandparents' um, condo that they used to live in before, uh, you know, before things went awry. And as I think about that, I think about that condo and I hear ticking clocks like that's that's the sound that I remember. Mm-hmm. But there there weren't any working clocks in their house, um, wow. in their condo. There weren't any. But I think I just think about it as though I, thinking about that space is the ticking time bomb of it all. You know, so interesting, um, Elizabeth. It's the first uh, major feature that you have directed and you have a cast headed by Hilary Swank and Robert Forster and Michael Shannon and Blythe Danner. That's that's quite a cast for a first-time director. Uh, thank you. Yes, I I lucked out. <laughs> well, they they were obviously attracted to a script of substance and feeling because that's that's not just uh, your script, but also, I have to say, having just met you once, that's you too. Thank you very much. I think the work that I had done to develop the, the script and the characters and to really make the dialogue feel real and the characters feel round and whole and giving them all something to be really 
you know, mining um, through the story. I, I, I think that that was something that they responded to. Certainly Hillary, who came in first and, and then that, you know, who doesn't want to work with Hillary Swank? So, um, yes, but I, I do feel very fortunate that I was able to get such tremendous actors who were also so perfect for the roles that they played. Mm-hmm. Um, it really made it possible to accomplish, you know, the family dynamic so quickly. And, you know, we had 22 days to shoot it and um, no rehearsal. So th- their abilities and, and the rightness for the roles just really made the movie um, work in that way. The family dynamic work um, really quickly. So it's real. It's it was- kind of a, a miracle that your movie got made in a way. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, what, you're almost Cinderella, 22 days and then you turn into a pumpkin or something. I mean, when you think about it, to have, to have the shot that you got, to have the budget, to have the trust, first time director, I mean, that's a big deal. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. It was a wonderful journey and and a labor of love for all of us, I think. I think so too. Um, well, I yeah. couldn't. I couldn't recommend the movie more highly. It's called again "What They Had," and now Elizabeth, I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the things that make your life better, whether they're universal and apply to your life every week, or if they're specific to this week. Thank you. I am excited to share them with you. Uh, they are more universal things that I rely on. Um, at all times, particularly bleak times and dark times, um, things that have just uh, made my life more beautiful. So oh, wonderful. In, I think in keeping with the theme of memory, right, um, and history, mm-hmm. it's a big part of my life. Um, and uh, the first one is uh, Filmstruck. Filmstruck is a streaming service that was... Um, uh, put out by Turner Classic Movies, and it's it's just this incredible treasure trove of old movies, classics, independent cinema, um, international films that you can't you have a hard time finding, uh, locating, and they're all there and they're curated beautifully, and there's uh, additional special features like you know on on David Lean and just uh, amazing um, content that is a treasure and it's something that you can't really find these things anywhere else unfortunately they're shutting it down <laughs> so is, is, they i think we're we're trying to get it you know people are trying to get it uh, they're petitioning to uh, wonderful filmmakers are trying to uh, petition to inspire um warner media to keep it going or to at least uh, find another platform for it if they can't keep it up oh cool but it's, it's amazing to rediscover these old classics and return to things that you saw as a kid or it's just a wonderful platform for all of that. So, yeah, that makes my life better and hopefully it will continue. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. That's a great one. My next favorite thing, my next thing that makes my life better is um, old family recipes. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. My um, great-grandmother came from Czechoslovakia when she was 16 and she knew... No English, and she came alone, and she ended up working as a as a domestic worker in the Chicago area and cooking for wealthy families. And my nana, her daughter, is now ninety eight years old wow. and is an amazing, still you know very. She's in really good health and and has um, all of her memory, and 
she's an amazing um, resource for me. And wow. the old the old recipes are the way that I get her talking because I always want to pry her for information, right? I want to pry her for her old stories mm-hmm. and her, her memories. And sometimes she gets a little, uh, you know, it's, it's harder for her to open up about them. But when I start asking her about, well, what did Grandma Susie, that's my great-grandmother, mm-hmm. what did she cook for you during the Depression? What did she... You know, what did, what did you guys eat when you were children? And then that opens Nana up. Wow. Um, and she'll talk about the plum dumplings that Grandma Susie made or the this plum sauce that they would eat with, with egg noodles during the Depression and how delicious it was. And then I get her talking about the other things, too. Mm-hmm. So there's something about these old recipes. It's like this lost art, you know, like the lost art of strudel making, how hard it is to make strudel and no one really does it anymore the old way. So there's something about that that's just, food just has this way of connecting us and 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 um, being a way of expression of love. So that's my tip on getting your elders to speak up no, that, talking about food. <laughs> that, that's a great suggestion. And plus, um, having an elder relative share their stories Again, we were talking about the fallibility or the mutability of of memory. Their stories, even if they alter them from time to time, are still uh, wonderful. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I saw my 92-year-old aunt recently, I tape recorded her. Now, of course, I don't have a tape recorder anymore, but I used my phone and I got her stories about uh, life when she was a young woman. Because, you know... Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Like, to know your history in such a personal way, you know, these things are really, it's, it's, they, they die with our elders. Um, exactly. They're not recorded. So, uh, it's really, I, I just, you know, I grew up visiting nursing homes that my, my other grandmother used to work at and just hanging out with um, all the residents there and hearing their stories. And it's just always been something that I've that I thought was so compelling and beautiful to hear like from the horse's mouth how things used to be and what their each of their experiences was. And, and um, the other thing is that some people are squeamish around old people, but old people really do have, have a lot to offer. And those memories are, are, as you say, they're priceless. Yeah, priceless. I would agree. All right. So my third item is to sort of move it into the present is my rescue pit bull. I we rescued a pit bull with a checkered past about six Uh-oh. years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I grew up with dogs. I grew up with golden retrievers, and you know, and my pit bull is just the sweetest, most eager to please, intuitive creature that I've ever known. For me, I think what it is about my dog that makes me so feels so great <laughs> isn't of course it's all the unconditional love and the wonderful companionship that they offer and just the, the you know just the sweetness of like you know a dog intuiting when you're sad and coming over and just sitting in your lap but it's also that she has this trauma in her past right she's got this this terrible trauma and she is a great lesson in living in the present moment and not holding on to what happened yesterday or or 10 years ago or in your childhood, like just evaluating each thing, each moment as it comes, because she'll, she'll do that. You know, she's had a terrible experience with uh, other people, but 
she makes a very quick judgment about whether or not you're trustworthy. And then if she determines that you are, there's nothing that, she, you know, there's nothing to, that nothing can break that. You can do anything to this dog and, and she'll be yours forever. So it's just a great lesson in like not trying not to bring your baggage into each moment and letting each moment just come and be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great thing. Um, number four would be not saying I'm sorry unless I truly am sorry. Ah. <laughs> I, uh, you mean in that reflexive way that women I do? do? I was a big I'm sorrier. And I realized one day, and I'd heard, you know, oh, we should stop saying, you know, we, we talk about this, that it's a reflexive thing for women to do. But it wasn't until I was a few years ago, I was holding the bathroom door open for another woman and telling her I was sorry. That <laughs> um, it really struck me how reflexive it is and how takes away the gravity of an apology that you truly mean, but how it also takes away the gravity of us, that we don't need to apologize for taking up space, that we have as much right to take up space on this earth as everyone else. So I, at that moment, made a really conscious effort to no longer apologize unless I really meant it. And it has changed the way that I interact with the world and interact with myself. And it's helped my confidence, I I guess, just my comfort with being here. That is so, that's so great to hear. I have not myself been as mindful with the apologies. I have apologized to many a lamppost in my life. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, the lamppost community respects me because I'm so polite to it. But hey, I definitely get what, what you're saying and have seen myself diminish in my own eyes when I've apologized for something I didn't have to apologize for or not been able to take a compliment. I agree. I was told as a girl to just be nice, right? Like if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And walking down the street and a stranger will tell you to smile. I don't know if that's happened to you, but it takes away your ability to just have whatever feelings you're having. And there's something about the permission to be a disruptor when you want to be a disruptor that I think is really tied to the messaging that we allow ourselves to chatter on about in our own minds. And not saying I'm sorry unless I truly am sorry has helped me silence that chatter a little bit. I'm going to try it. Also, I think that what you're doing is restoring the sorriness to the phrase. Restoring the value of the apology, what it really is meant to, to be. Um, and needs to be, I think, for all our future relationships. You know, they lose their value when they become overproduced. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Not everything in the world is awesome. (laughs) Okay, so number five would be old musical numbers. (laughs) When I'm feeling (laughs) down, I just go on YouTube or I'll take up these old musicals and I'll watch something like the barn raising dance from seven brides for seven brothers or you know make Mm -hmm. them laugh the amazing donald o'connor singing in the rain there's nothing like that or like the nicholas brothers um their stormy weather piece or tap dancing ginger time something about those and the joy and the lightness of dancing and the way that we used to celebrate these amazing artists who had tremendous skills it's hard to find anymore so I just think 
those are a treasure that make me smile <laughs> and make me feel better and inspire me to be a better artist and technician. I think music and dance, the arts are really restorative if applied regularly and uh, under doctor's orders. And I think those dance numbers don't even seem humanly possible anymore. Isn't it crazy? Yes, we just don't have anything like that anymore. There are very, very few people we know who can dance, who can sing, who have that elegance, who, who don't make it look like they're trying very hard. I mean, you look at Fred and Ginger, they just seem to have no muscles in their body. They just seem to float. And uh, no, that is wonderful. And your list is great. And I so appreciate it. And I really do appreciate talking to you, Elizabeth, because you are somebody who has captured feelings and put them on a screen in a way that is accessible, in a way that is very moving and in a way that is rare these days. And you're just at the cusp of a tremendous career. And I wish you all the best. And I hope movie number two is as gratifying as this first one was. Thank you. And what they had is a wonderful movie, uh, which you wrote and directed. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation. Well, stay calm and act natural. Until next week, bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.